independent thinking, independent thinking. What are you? Are you a Democrat, Republican, progressive, conservative, liberal, socialist, communist, right, left, evangelical? Is that all that there is? Do you have to fit within these labels? Is there another way? What are you? Who are you? Please be careful about letting other people's labels define you. I feel quite the opposite about the whole subject. In this week's episode, I make the case for and extol the virtues of independent thinking. Hi everyone, welcome to the Gentleman's Guide to Flirting. I am David, the author of the book of the same name, Gentleman's Guide to Flirting, available on Amazon.com. I am also your host and the exalted leader of the Gentleman's Guide to Flirting empire. You will be able to find this content on YouTube or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you for joining. Let's get started. Hello everyone! Welcome to episode 27 of the Gentleman's Guide to Flirting podcast. I am David, the author of the book. In this week's episode, I want to talk about independent thinking. Independent thinking. It seems to me that people like labeling themselves and others, and I don't see a lot of pushback on the practice out there. Like I asked in the opening, are you a Democrat, Republican, Progressive, Conservative, Liberal, Socialist, communist, right, left, or evangelical. Millions upon millions of people clearly do follow these labels. You may call your various divisions of society other things in your country, but it is my impression that labeling folks is common practice around the world, and I don't personally care for it. I think labeling and following these labels is counterproductive, limiting, and in some cases even dangerous. And I don't think it sets you guys up for success. So I want to invest some time this week exploring the topic of labeling people and living according to labels. Do you have to fit within these labels, right versus left, pro-people versus pro-government versus small government, liberal versus conservative? Is there another way? I say independent thinking is clearly better what I am not saying is that being an independent thinker is an easier path. I am not sure that it is. It takes a lot more work on your part. So it might not be easier, but done well, it is a better way to live in my strongly held opinion. My first concern with just picking some labels that appeal to you and following those ways of thinking is a herd mentality mindset isn't going to serve you well in this increasingly tough and competitive world. If what you are doing is basically blindly accepting and repeating opinions and perspectives that you hear without critically thinking about it, by that I mean asking yourself, is this information factually correct? Does this perspective align with my own values? And maybe a little closer to home, does this help me improve as a person? Does it help me achieve my goals and dreams for myself and the people that I support and care about most in this world? The habits you pick up and the skills you develop as an effective, independent thinker make you stronger and more effective in many areas of life.
being a good problem solver who is sharp and who can get to the facts in any situation will benefit you throughout the course of your whole life. Being a smart, self-sufficient decision maker with good judgment honed over years helps make you more valuable to others around you in your circle of family and friends, in business or work, and with your customers and clients. Like I said, being an independent thinker is harder and takes a lot more work on your part. So what are the downsides of taking the easiest path and just following someone else's labels and ways of thinking? First, it seems to me that the world is full of misinformed people. Now, it isn't supposed to be that way, but it is. The internet was supposed to have this great leveling effect with people all around the world being able to access high quality and accurate information at little to no cost and with few barriers. But it seems like the internet has helped amplify disinformation and hostility and anger and has been part of further dividing us. I am not anti-internet, but I am badly disappointed in how things have developed to this point. Second, the world also has an abundance of liars with axes to grind. The world is full of people who couldn't care less if you are informed. They just want you to think a certain way, vote a certain way, spend your money a certain way because it benefits them, not you. This makes independent thinking vital. Live by your own principles. Live by your own values. I believe living by principles, values, and rules that resonate with you and appeal to you at your core is a great way to live and govern your own life. I am not saying there is just one way to think to be successful, but I do give you some great options in the book. Specifically in the book, we have the 10 solid, real-world tested rules on how to deal with the narrower topic of dating and approaching women. But those 10 rules are just a part of a larger scheme of principles and values that we start with and outline in part one of the book that is crucial to our whole process and your success in meeting great women. Those same principles and values in part one can form the framework for your whole life beyond just dating and relationships with women. Now back to independent thinking. Now, how do you know what's in your head is based in fact and is correct and is right to use as a basis for making your own decisions? You need to learn how to check citations, check references, and listen to the most credible sources, those with proven good reputations. The best description I have come across for how we got into this mess was so much of the information being bad is from Sue Gardner, Sue G-A-R-D-N-E-R. -E she used to be a leader in the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, and I think she is worth a listen. It is just a few minutes long, and I think it is well worth your time. I'll conclude with this material from Sue Gardner, and we will be back next week with another great episode. Enjoy Sue's perspective. I want to take a minute for us to remember the early to middle days of the internet. So when the internet first came along from 1990 until maybe as recently as 2005, 2007, 2010, we felt, I think many people felt many different things, but I felt and many of us felt that the internet was going to have a great leveling effect and a kind of democratizing effect on people. Suddenly, for the first time, we could communicate across large distances instantaneously with people pretty much anywhere in the world. Uh, 
countries that were repressive authoritarian regimes had a harder time censoring news and information. And so their people had access to material that they hadn't previously had. We started seeing sites, sites like Wikipedia develop and even the mainstream media itself, which historically had uh, taken a kind of a gatekeeper function by accident, it couldn't do otherwise. Even the mainstream media was kind of opening up and we were seeing that people were now having access to what was in effect their own printing press, their own ability to publish. That was gonna open up and democratize access. People would get a voice who had historically been marginalized and disadvantaged. And so we thought, or many of us thought, that the internet was gonna be a great thing for humanity and make us wiser, smarter, more compassionate. In the intervening years since then, I think we can now pick out, there are three, what I would characterize as sort of troubling trends or precursors that kind of point the way to the election result in the United States. So I'm going to talk through uh, these three things that some were visible at the time and some are probably only now becoming obvious to us in retrospect. The first is that the internet famously um, has broken the news industry, famously and accidentally. It used to be that news, it was possible to have a news company that was profitable and successful. Throughout much of the 20th century, that was the case. In those days, ordinary people, you and me, we did not pay the full costs of the news that we consumed, and we did not have to, it wasn't necessary. And that was primarily because of advertising. So advertisers were heavily subsidizing the news industry. That was broken accidentally by the internet. Today, we find ourselves in a situation where roughly 80 cents of every digital dollar, which today is most dollars, um, that is spent on advertising goes to Facebook and to Google. And that leaves about 20 cents, depending on the numbers that you look at, about 20 cents left for everybody else, which includes the news industry. And so the result of that is that the news industry, their business model, their revenue model has been essentially shattered and they have a lot less cash to work with than they used to. You can see that in this chart and if you're involved in news or you hang out in circles that care about news and the future of news, you've probably seen a version of this chart before. We call it the holy shit graph. And it shows the cliff, right? So you can see a very healthy industry for decades and decades and then around about 2000, the revenues just fall off a cliff. The end result of that has been in the United States today, we have about half the number of working journalists that we had about 20 years ago. The picture is a little bit different depending on the country that you live in, but the story is essentially the same. And what I would say is that we are only now at the very beginnings of feeling the societal impact of that loss of journalists. The second trend I'm gonna call out is that the internet has developed into a machine for micro-targeting and persuading people. For the first 10 or so years of the internet, it didn't really have a business model. Um, and there is a guy in California who runs a website called Pinboard. Pinboard. His name is Maciej Czaplowski. And Maciej says the business model for the internet was initially storytelling for investors. And so you went to VCs and you told them a story about how you could achieve you know, hockey stick growth and you would make a lot of money in the end. If you could persuade them, you got a lot of money to work with. The internet now has developed a business model, it's developed two. One is um, for some kinds of entertainment properties, subscription model is working. 
and for practically everything else, including the news media, the model that has taken root is one of advertising. <clears throat> but advertising on the internet today is radically different from the advertising that our parents were used to. <clears throat> so here's how advertising used to work. You wanted to reach a lot of people, and so what you did was you bought time on television programs or in print media, and that worked okay. And in doing that, you were only able to very loosely target groups. So you could target, you know, American families or people living in Toronto or teenagers, but you were really only able to target big, broad groups, and you couldn't actually be sure that you were going to reach the people you were trying to reach. That has all changed today. So today, let's say this is me. I joined Facebook. And when I join Facebook, I voluntarily give up a certain amount of information about myself, my gender, the city that I live in, the college that I went to, and where I work. And then as I wander around the internet, I'm constantly exuding more information by the things that I like, the things that I tweet, the stuff that I comment on, things that I buy, I manually update my own profiles. And so I'm constantly sort of putting out a fog of new data. That data is collected, for example, by Facebook, but not only by Facebook, and put in a container which is named for me and specific to me. Now, if I were an advertiser and I want to reach people like me, I would do that through Facebook. I would use the create ad link, which is accessible to anybody. You don't need to be, I, I can make ads on Facebook. I could look for women who are adults, who are college graduates, who live in San Francisco. I could narrow it to women who were originally from Canada. I could narrow it further to people who are interested in technology. And then I could narrow it even further, let's say, to people who are fans of Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale. That would spit out for me the 1,500 people in the San Francisco Bay Area who match that um, profile. And then as an advertiser, I could, for a really small amount of money, $30 or $100, I could target those very specific people with a specific message. So this is brand new, right? You could not do this 10 years ago. The third trend or precursor that I'm going to call out is uh, social media. So social media has, again, this is an accident, but social media appears to have accelerated and deepened a hyper-partisanship that has always existed in human society. Um, it has made it worse. So when the internet first came along, a new capability that publishers got was for the first time we could see how people were actually interacting with the content that we were creating. We could see where they came to our sites from, we could see what they clicked on, how long they stayed on that page, and where they went to afterwards. This was a new capability, and what it gave rise to was a kind of, you know, never-ending A-B testing. So we were constantly looking at the performance of the headlines that we wrote. We could test images against each other, story length. And so we could continuously optimize all of our work to make it likelier that people would click on it and would want to share it. And this eventually developed into a reasonably profitable business model, especially if the material that you focused on was stuff that was intended to entertain people. You didn't need the heavy costs of like international um, foreign bureaus. You didn't need a lot of copy editing. You didn't need a heavy research team. And so you could actually make money doing this. It turned out that social sharing was driven largely by emotion 
And it turned out that the emotion that was the easiest to sort of produce on a predictable basis was anger. And it turned out that the kind of content that most predictably elicited anger and therefore social sharing was politics. And it was specifically hyperpartisan political coverage. And so that's how we developed hyperpartisan news. It grew out of clickbait and it grew out of our ability to optimize stories. Again, that was Sue Gardner's wonderful description from the from a recent Internet Degarna conference, and I don't think it gets any better than that. Anyway, uh, that's all I have for this week. I'll see you next time. Take care.